welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week, we are covering a Harley Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite joint. I am so excited. (laughs) We always like them. We always do. And this one is extra freaky. Yeah, bonkers. <laughs> Harley Quinn and Mr. Saturday's stories are usually pretty deranged, but this one is extra deranged for our pleasure. Uh, Catherine, what are we discussing? We are discussing The Bird with the Broken Wing, uh, which is an evocative title. Absolutely. And it was first published, and this might actually tell you how bonkers this story is. It seems to have only been published in the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection itself. There apparently is no trace of it being published in any other magazine, which is very odd for these. Yeah, so I think pretty much all of the other ones were previously collected. Yeah, even per the official Christie estate website about this, Mm -hmm. uh, they don't seem to know if it was previously published. Right, yeah, my, my edition says the same thing. It says that they can't find a prior publication. So they're they're mm-hmm. kind of hedging their bets a little bit there. But yeah, maybe that's just because she wanted to go completely wackadoo for the collection. <laughs> I don't know. I guess. I mean, it's an incredibly weird story. Yeah. And, and as, as listeners know, uh, for the mysterious Mr. Quinn, that is indeed saying something. So <laughs> For sure it's saying something. Yeah. I would argue, it though, just, like we talked a little bit about this, how the stories get increasingly kooky as the collection goes on. And there is a trajectory there. It's not entirely random. So I think not surprising that this one is appearing later on in the collection. Right. Yeah. So then the publication is just when the collection was published in 1930. Yeah. Uh, William Collins in the UK predates Collins Crime Club. I know that we talk about that that often with Mr. Quinn, but it predates that. And uh, Dodd Mead later in 1930 in the US. Got it. Let's talk about our victim, who is Mabel Annesley. So Mabel Annesley is an ethereal young woman from a, from a notoriously cursed family who has seemingly taken her own life by hanging herself. Right. Our suspects, guess what? We're in a country house story. So what does that mean? Closed circle. (laughs) I know. First off, we have the patriarch of this country house, David Keeley, who's apparently a very brilliant mathematician, but like a weirdo. And he's perpetually overlooked by everyone. Super mild-mannered. He's basically wallpaper to people. Next up, we have his daughter, Madge Keeley, who seems to play the role of hostess. There's no Mrs. Keeley here, so Madge has taken on that role. And she has invited Mr. Satterthwaite in the first place. Right, and then we have Roger Graham, who's Madge's fiancé, who seems to be a little distracted, perhaps, for you know, reasons that we can get into. Right. Next up, Gerard Annesley, who is Mabel's husband. And he seems to be a little afraid of Mabel not to completely understand her. And you know what? I feel him on that because I don't think I completely understand Mabel either. They don't necessarily seem to be the most simpatico of spouses. Let's put it that way. No. And then we have Mrs. Graham, who is Roger's mother. She doesn't really have much of a personality, I guess. Yeah. And then last and very much least, we have Doris Coles, (laughs) 
who is a loudmouthed friend of Madge. And I'm just going to pull it out of the story because it was one of my favorite lines. Mr. Satterthwaite sits next to her at dinner and is horrified by her loud voice and her ringing, determined laugh that expressed more the determination to be cheerful at all costs than any real mirth. And this is this is what he says, or this is what the, how the narration sums, sums her up from Mr. Satterthwaite's perspective. Her name seemed to be Doris, and she was the type of young woman Mr. Satterthwaite most disliked. She had, he considered, no artistic justification for existence. I know. I thought it was the biggest burn that I've ever read. That is a sick burn, Mr. Satterthwaite. You're saying she doesn't deserve to live. I had noticed that, too, and I literally cut and pasted it. I texted it to my mother. <laughs> yeah, I that's and well, Mr. Satterthwaite, he makes no bones about his distaste, his utter distaste for those who do not have any artistry in their blood because he is a connoisseur and he likes the weird and the wacky and the talented. And if if he decides that you don't have it, apparently you don't belong on this earth with him. All right, let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Satterthwaite is staying at a country house, because of course he is, where they are playing a game of table turning, which is basically Ouija. Reminded me of the Um, Sinford mystery. Right. Except Satterthwaite is not playing. He is bemoaning to himself the cold of the country house and wishing he was back in London because basically he thinks, oh, well, at my age, why would you want to bother with these damn cold houses? And like, this is not worth my time. I always like to check the two elements that seem to be required in a Harley Quinn story. And the first is Mr. Satterthwaite bemoaning his existence as an observer and how he's older and weasened, and it's right there on the first page. He was feeling a little old and pathetic. He's basically having a a pity party for himself at this country house, which, to be clear, is not even the country house where the meat of the story takes place. This is a different country house where he is against. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) Correct. We haven't even gotten to that country house yet. No, no, no. So it turns out he had been invited to that other country house by Madge Keeley, but he had turned her down because he wants to go home to London. Unfortunately for him, the Ouija players spell out, oh my gosh, they spell out Quinn and Laydell, which is the name of the Keeley Country House. Satterthwaite's been like eavesdropping on this whole thing, and he basically is like, well, that's too weird, and he kind of freaks out, calls Madge, and says, I accept the invitation, and he goes there immediately. I just wanted to point out that when Mr. Satterthwaite is overhearing that they're spelling out Q-U-I-N, he is described thusly as sitting taut and erect in his chair, his eyes shining. And then later on, after he invites himself over to Laydell, which is the invitation he had just refused, he has a strange flush on his withered cheeks. And there's just always this rather visceral and physical excitement I that Mr. Satterthwaite experiences. Kemper, Again, are you Mr. sure Quinn that- does not exist. So I'm not even really casting aspersions on their relationship. This is all internal, but it's just interesting. It is a little bit, my dad wrote a porno right now. <laughs> The table rocked. (laughs) I mean, this is a family-friendly podcast, Kemper, so you know what? I I have to duly report my readerly uh, impressions here. 
Well, it is literally what it says. So, you know, it is. (laughs) It was maybe some Mary Westmacott seeping in. (laughs) Don't fall into the trap of of Mary Westmacott being romance novels. I know. I know. I know. They're psychological studies. I know. And I'm kidding. And you know what? We'll explore that in greater detail on our Patreon account. Yeah, we absolutely will. In any case, Mr. Satterthwaite calls Madge and, as we've said, reinvites himself to Laydell, the Keeley country house, and he shows up there that same night. And Madge greets him, and she tells him that she has really good news. She's getting engaged. And he says, this made me cringe. Mr. Wright has come along? <laughs> and Christy even acknowledges it was an old-fashioned term, but Madge did not object to it. I just, Mr. Satterthwaite is kind of a cheese ball too, which uh, makes me feel kindly toward him. Well, it makes Madge feel kindly towards him, too. Yeah, they have a nice a nice little relationship, actually, Madge and Mr. Satterthwaite. So she doesn't actually tell him who she's engaged to. And then they go into dinner, and at the dinner, this is where we have everyone gathered, and Mr. Satterthwaite observes them, and, and he has his sick burn for Doris. No reason for existence. Gerard, Mabel's husband, yeah. he's awkward. So Roger... The young man, who we do later find out is Madge's fiance, just seems distracted and somewhere mm-hmm. else. Then everyone, of course, ignores David Keeley, Madge's father, who is technically the host here right. of this party. And then Mr. Satterthwaite notices this creature at the table and he's just quite taken with her and not that she's beautiful. And he's, he's like, what is it? What is the word that she makes me think of? And he finally realizes enchantment. She makes him think of enchantment. One of the hidden people from the hollow Hills. Yeah. A fairy. A fairy. And already I'm rolling. I'm personally rolling my eyes a little bit, but uh, this is of course, Mabel Annesley. And, you know, she's not quite of this world. And he immediately thinks of her as the bird with the broken wing. We have our title. So after the dinner, Satterth waits, wandering around, and he finds Mabel by herself in a library, sitting in the moonlight, singing a song with a ukulele. <laughs> because of her, her uke. As she refers right. to it at one point. Yeah. That's yeah. where that's where Mabel honestly officially lost me. When she referred to her uke, I said, nope, I'm out. <laughs> uh, yeah, she is like a prototype manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> or just a just a proto hipster. She's a little bit the Zoe Deschanel character as spoofed on Saturday Night Live and they're being quirky skit. Right. <laughs> Strumming her tiny ukulele. She's actually playing a ukulele. Like it's yeah, we're not making that up. That's literally what's going on. And singing in the moonlight to herself. She sings a a Grieg song that Mr. Satterthwaite is quite fond of. Right, and she explains sort of like airily. Um, that she'd seen a man in the woods earlier and in the dappled light between the beautiful trees, you know, he reminded her of a harlequin. <laughs> the sun was setting and the light of it through the trees made him look like a kind of harlequin. 
Yay, we have our second element checked off here. Yeah, Harley Quinn it's also looking like Harlequin. Possible that Mabel is on shrooms. Yeah, I Mabel mean, Mabel is in another world by either natural or chemical means, or perhaps both for um, uh, the duration of this story. I just have to mention, um, because I think listeners should go see it if they get a chance. Uh, Kemper, I know that you haven't seen it, but... Uh, I'm going the, to this week. Yeah, in the new movie, Book Smart, which is super charming, um, there's a character played by Billy Lord, who is Carrie Fisher's daughter. I lost my virginity in what I thought was a park, but it turned out to be a graveyard and now the ghost spirits live inside my eggs waiting to be reborn i read this entire story thinking that that character <laughs> was mabel and, 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 and go 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 come 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 now 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 <laughs> back to the story satterthwaite explains that oh yeah he pretty much knows who she's talking about and she takes this completely at face value like yeah of course you know who the guy in the woods who looks like a Harlequin is. And then she explains to him, like, she's never been happier in her life. And that woods encounter is what is making her sing because her life is now so happy. And so eventually everybody else at the party draws her out of the room because they want her to perform. And she is lovely and enchanted and sings all these songs that everybody loves and is just dreamy. And Mr. Satterthwaite realizes that when Mabel honestly is talking about being happy, what she means is this extreme form of almost superhuman ecstasy that actually frightens him when he understands what she's feeling. I mean, he doesn't even completely understand it, but he gets a sense during this little tete-a-tete, if you will. And he's intrigued by her and he's enchanted by her, but also a little scared of her. It's because it she's on shrooms. Dance and party upstairs! Yeah! Whoa! No, wait, It's because she's on shrooms. And there is also this notion that she comes from this cursed family because her maiden name was Clydesley. Uh, Madge explains to Mr. Satterthwaite that she is one of the ill-fated Clydesleys. And this is what Christy writes. He started the ill-fated Clydesleys. He remembered a brother had shot himself. A sister had been drowned. Another had perished in an earthquake. A queer (laughs) doomed family. This girl must be the youngest of them. So three of her siblings have died horribly and spoiler, but not really since we mentioned she's the victim. She's going to be the fourth. Yikes. Yeah. This is spooky Christie. It's like that is an element of the story. There's never a point at which we realize that that kind of superstitious belief in an ill-fated family is, of course, nonsense. And there's a reason, a perfectly rational reason why. Like that stands at the end of the story. Like this is spooky woo-woo Christie. Right. So... Satterthwaite and company begin to go upstairs and go to bed. David Keeley is behind them turning off the lights of the house and, you know, they'll go to sleep. Unfortunately, the next morning, it turns out that poor manic pixie dream girl Mabel has killed herself by means of hanging in her bedroom, which is separated through an interconnecting hallway uh, with the room that her husband is in. And so the police show up and Satterthwaite, 
of course, recognizes Inspector Wingfield, who also knows Hatterthwaite and knows him to be unusually good at these, you know, (laughs) suspicious activities. Mm-hmm. And so he bizarrely let Satterthwaite go see the body. It's like, oh, yeah, sure, just walk on into the crime scene. That's cool. These Mr. Quinn stories are not heavy on police procedure. <laughs> no, not so much. Uh, in a drawing room scene, of course, the inspector explains to everyone what has happened. And he asks how Mabel's state had been the previous night. Mr. Satterthwaite tries to hold his tongue, but he just can't finally. He blurts out that it's not possible that Mabel killed herself. And Wingfield sends everyone away. He tells them not to leave the house, and he wants to have a little private talk with Mr. Satterthwaite. The reason why Mr. Satterthwaite can't explain is it has to do with the table turning and the fact that Mr. Quinn's name came up and then Laydell, and he came here, and whenever Mr. Quinn tells him in his oblique way to go to a place, there's some sort of a murder. So, right, yeah. Or, and it, be it an attempted murder or an actual murder. So he, he knows that this has to to be there's something more nefarious going on Do here than really suicide. Have a potential dark Satterthwaite theory. <laughs> you know, it's not a bad theory. It's really not. In that, in that, we know that Mr. Quinn is almost definitely a figment here, right? Or a specter of some a specter kind. of some sort, or you know, some sort of a projection of one aspect of Mr. Satterthwaite's psyche. Again, a, a Tyler Durden, if you will. Yeah. yeah, maybe he is creating these situations, and it's his way. It's his sort of version of self-aggrandizement. He feels old and pathetic as an observer, one who's been forced on the sidelines, and this is his way of making himself feel important. He commits murders, and then he fingers other people for them (laughs) and plays the the hero. In these stories, it's not outside the realm of possibility. It's really not. I like that theory. Dark Satterthwaite. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Leave it. Of course, Catherine is the one that comes up with a dark Satterthwaite theory. You know what? I'm going to start propounding a dark Poirot theory when we do our next Poirot just to just to torture you. (laughs) No, there's not a dark Poirot. No, take it back. There really isn't. There really isn't. It's just a Papa Poirot. That's all it is. He's just a Papa Poirot. That's why he can't he can't explain that because he's not that far gone uh, in his madness that he thinks it would make sense to other people. But fortunately for Mr. Satterthwaite, Inspector Wingfield is already convinced that Mabel was murdered. Even though there was a mark around her neck for where she was hung, there was actually a smaller mark within that larger rope mark that proves she was actually strangled by something much smaller and sharper. Yeah, she was garroted. Yeah, so they know that the hanging was done post-mortem, essentially, and as a a cover-up, and that she was, in fact, murdered. So good for Mr. Satterthwaite. He doesn't have to share his crazy with them just yet. No. And so when he'd been upstairs earlier intruding on the crime scene, he had seen what he assumed was Mrs. Graham smoking, which seemed really weird to him because she didn't seem like a smoker. But what he really saw was smoke coming out of a room. So now he is immediately suspicious. So he goes upstairs and in an act of breaking and entering, gets into her room and finds in the grate 
state of the fireplace, fragments of what are clearly love letters. And he pieces them together enough to essentially realize that there are love letters between Roger Graham and Mabel. And then he immediately gets caught by Mrs. Graham and then by Roger, who actually wants to explain, because the love letters were, in fact, between Roger and Mabel. And Mrs. Graham had found them in her son's room, and because she was concerned, she'd burned them. Because they're down there, essentially, for this engagement announcement. With Madge. With Madge. And Roger makes the point that he had not told Mabel, that he was breaking off the romantic entanglement. Um, And he's doing so, A, because she's married, and B, because it's much more sensible to marry Madge. And not the drugged out uke player. (laughs) (laughs) Who also wears, by the way, she's wearing, I mean, part of his whole bird with the broken wing thing is that she's wearing this. So many ruffles. Feathered, ruched, ruffled, blue dress, I think. She's definitely wearing a super quirky, in my mind, hipstery, ridiculous outfit. Well, I love your dress. What thrift store is it from? Oh, this isn't a dress. It's an electric blanket. I'm freezing all the time. But I did find it in the garbage. Anyway, um, Madge apparently is also unaware of his romantic adventure with Mabel. So... He's basically saying neither of these women really knew what was going on and I'm really sorry and like please don't blame me and I didn't do it. Right, I didn't do it even though it, he obviously understands what his motive would be and that perhaps if he had told Mabel she was refusing to let him go and then she could ruin the engagement. But he's saying I didn't even tell her. This is all a mess but it wasn't me. And he believes him. Mr. Satterthwaite believes Roger. He's convinced he's telling the truth because he's a very upright seeming young man. I don't really know why Mr. Satterthwaite likes Roger so much. He doesn't seem to be all that artistic. Again, why all the hatred for Doris? I know. Matt, and also, Match doesn't so- even seem to be all that artistic. No. And also, by the way, Roger was playing two ladies at the same time. This is true. Not such a gentleman, that Roger. No. But Mr. Satterthwaite feels very kindly toward him. And he's wandering the house somewhat unhappily because he just can't figure out what's going on here. And he obviously feels that he's been sent here to do so. And finally, he finds Mabel's ukulele and he asks Doris, of all people, the unartistic Doris, to tune it for him. And she does because apparently she actually does have some use in this world. Right. But one of the strings snaps when she does so, and she realizes that it's because there's the wrong string on the the peg that the string was strung on. Yeah, so when when you crank the peg to tune it, it snapped it. Right. Although what's kind of funny, I mean, I will say this as an amateur violin player myself, the fact that Doris says it's a size too big is curious because the sort of smaller and higher the string, obviously, the easier it is to snap. Snap. You wouldn't be more likely to snap a thicker string. You would actually be less likely to snap right. a thicker and string also, than a thinner string. Also, I mean, I am embarrassed to admit this, but I do own a ukulele. And... <laughs> I don't know what... There's a little bit of Mabel in you, Catherine, actually. (laughs) Let's be honest. I mean... 
Oh, God. It's horrifying. (laughs) It's horrifying. But I don't know what they were doing to twist. Like, how out of tune was it that they were twisting it that hard to snap it? I true story. The first time I picked up a violin mm-hmm. um, before I had a lesson, not even knowing what I was doing, I idiotically tweaked the peg at the top. Which, by the way, you have the, your fine tuners, so you don't even have to use those that much, and they're such a pain to use. It's like I do everything in my power not to have to twist them using the pegs at the top now. Right. But um, I tweaked it and immediately snapped the E string, which is the highest string, and does does snap quite easily if you do that. So Yeah, but uh, she was playing the night before, so how out of tune would it have been? Right, I mean, it, and that, now we can just cast aspersions on the instrument itself. It doesn't seem like an instrument that kept tune very well. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, I mean, they're super cheaply made. Like, let's be real about what ukuleles are. But at the same time, it would not have fallen out of tune overnight. Unless there was a major change in weather. Because I will tell you, especially as the weather gets hotter, like in the summer, if there are major changes in temperature and or humidity, my violin gets really out of tune within like an hour. It's shocking. Really? Yeah, it's really it's really responsive to stuff like that. Like when I have it in in my car, I I try not to park in the sun. That it'll just heat up and it's just bad for the violin anyway. But even it also if it's in makes the it case? out of tune. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. I will say my ukulele falls very easily out of tune, but that's probably because it's cheap. <laughs> a ukulele has a really weird sound to it. It's why I thought it was funny yeah. that she was playing it. Yeah, hey, it's quirky. Got to keep it quirky. If you're a Clydesley, so the A string would be the highest, i.e. narrowest, thinnest string. So it does make sense that that's the one that was missing. And then there was a larger string put in the place of the A string. Even though it was a thicker string, apparently Doris just clumsily pulled on it too hard and was trying to tune it and snapped it. In fairness to Doris, it is also possible that the person who clearly didn't know that that it was the incorrect string um, wound it too tightly. Too tight, yeah. In any case, you know, Mr. Satterthwaite realizes that is very weird. Why is the wrong string on that ukulele? And it must have been swapped out by someone who clearly wasn't Mabel, since she was obviously a great ukulele player and she had been playing beautifully the previous night. And that brings us into the world as it actually is. And we have a couple of clues here in this Mr. Quinn story. Catherine Brobeck, clue number one. Well, the ukulele string. (laughs) So we've just talked about this at length and we don't need to talk about it a lot more, but this is obviously what was used to Garrett, poor Mabel, to death. And so the deduction here is whoever murdered her had A, access to the ukulele, B, didn't know how to use it, or they would have replaced the string correctly. And it also seems a little bit like it must have been a spur-of-the-moment crime because it was something that Mabel had on her. So it was not like the villain here could necessarily have premeditated it. It's an indication that this was more of a spontaneous sort of a thing. So clue number two is the order of the people going to bed. Christy is very careful about how she describes the sequence of events here. They all seem to go to bed at the same time. Gerard goes slightly earlier than the others. That's Mabel's husband. 
But Mabel isn't with them when they're all going up to bed, and it's left to David Keeley to turn off the lights. So the deduction here is just to read closely the passage in which Christy is describing the sequence of events as everyone goes up to bed. And it's very clever how she pulls this off here. We know that Mr. Satterthwaite bids Mrs. Graham a ceremonious good night, and we're told that there are two staircases, one close at hand, the other at the end of a long corridor. It's the one at the end of the corridor that Mr. Satterthwaite goes up to reach his room. So that's why Mr. Satterthwaite is kind of hanging around for a little bit, so we get to see the goings-on here sort of through his eyes or from his perspective. And he watches Mrs. Graham and her son pass by the stairs near at hand, whence the quiet Jared Annesley had already preceded them. And then at that point, we have Madge speaking to Mabel. So really, unless there's some sort of funny business going on of people leaving their bedrooms after they've gone to bed, which we're never led to believe is the case, that essentially knocks out Mrs. Graham, her son Roger, and Mabel's husband, Gerard. And then we have Madge saying to Mabel, you'd better get your ukulele. You'll forget it in the morning if you don't. And you've got to make such an early start because she's supposedly leaving in the morning. So we know that by the fact that Madge is talking to Mabel that she's still alive. And then Doris Coles, with her forced boisterousness, grabs Mr. Satterthwaite by one arm, says early to bed, etc. And together, Doris, Madge, and Mr. Satterthwaite run down the corridor, and then they pause before they go up the stairs to wait for David Keeley, who, Christy writes, was following at a much more sedate pace, turning out electric lights as he came. The four of them went upstairs together. Here's the thing. We're never told when or how Mabel goes to bed. And of course, the answer is she never did because she was murdered. And she had to have essentially been murdered at some point during that sequence of events. And there's only one person who's other behind than them. There's yeah. only one person who's behind those three people that are waiting to go up the staircase. And that's David Keeley, who we're told is taking his time. And who also we're told right before the sequence has been absentmindedly twanging Mabel's ukulele. I, I think often in these short stories, I criticize Christy for not layering in her clues as subtly as she manages to do in the novels where there's just a lot more room to create obfuscation. Sometimes it's a little obvious when Mm -hmm. we have a clue in a short story, but it's not obvious here. Like no one is going to read that passage of events and be like, Oh, David Keeley had to have killed her during those two seconds that he was lagging behind in the corridor. But If we read it as astute readers and also with the hindsight of knowing that he did it, spoiler, it does make sense. The the blocking of it does actually make sense. Totally does. All right. Let's get to our resolution here since I just spoiled it. Yeah. Well, Satterthwaite goes into the library in which the ukulele had been found. And in the library, he finds David Keeley. He confronts him and he says that he knows that Keeley must be the murderer, not Roger or Jared. Why exactly? Well, (laughs) this is when David Keeley starts laughing hysterically to himself about how no one ever notices him. Ha 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 ha. And at the same time, Inspector Wingfield walks in, overhears this, and there's literally no other reason than the fact that I guess he's overlooked and apparently insane. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I like to say that he pulled a Neville Strange from Toward Zero. <laughs> Mr. Keeley laughed a funny, giggling little laugh that made Mr. Satterthwaite feel rather sick. I imagine a <clears throat> something like this. <laughs> right? Definitely that. Um, <laughs> the, the Neville Strange comparison is a very good one because that's a little bit how his story ends, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, we could argue that there is a third clue here in that we just finished discussing Toward Zero and Death Comes as the End. And both of those stories actually involve a sort of psychopath. There's no sort of about it in Toward Zero. It's a little murky in Death Comes as the End. But essentially a psychopath hiding in plain sight under this kind of staid demeanor or just a demeanor that is in complete sort of diametric opposition to the insanity roiling beneath the surface. And we have a similar circumstance here. His very befuddlement and abstraction and quietness is what I suppose you could argue belies his insanity. And, you know, in Christie, people wear masks all the time. Very few people are as they appear. Most people aren't hiding the fact that they're murderers, but most people are hiding something. So we shouldn't be surprised, I suppose, that the person who turns out to be a psychopath is the one who we never notice. Because in Christie, at least, the psychopath is never going to seem like a psychopath. So there is that. Right. It's just that there's so, it's, it's so, there's so rarely a psychopath in Christy that I'm hesitant well, to extrapolate a, a, a well, rule the weird that, the know? weird thing is we've had a run of them I know and this is obviously it just happens to be that we covered the short story in you know around the same time but we have had a weird run of them we actually had one of our listeners who corresponds with us a bunch both via Twitter and email was making that point that you can draw a parallel between toward zero and Death Comes at the End between Neville Strange and Yamos. They're similar characters. Yeah, they are. And David Keeley is not. He's not similar to them. But it's funny to be covering this after we just covered those two. And it's just like, wow, it's a lot of psychopaths in a row. Yeah, it's just here's maybe the rule that can stick. If there is to be a psychopath in Christie, he or she is going to be under deep cover. Yeah, that seems right. It's not much of a rule, but and you know, again, there aren't that many true psychopaths in Christie, but we have a couple more yet to encounter, so we we shall see if that rule sticks. And here's the reason here's why Christie often doesn't have psychopaths in her story. It's not very satisfying because there really is no reason other than that he was crazy. Uh, it seems to be the case that David Keeley found Mabel in the library when everyone else was going to bed. She was probably collecting her ukulele since Madge told her that she should. And he spur of the moment killed her. Then he slowly made his way down the corridor, turning all the lights off. And once everyone else had gone to bed, he came back down, carried her corpse to her bedroom, hung her up via this noose and staged it to look like a grisly suicide before going to bed himself. Just cause. Just cause. You know, it's not very satisfying as a resolution because just cause is never really good answer, but that is what happens here. And so it's a short story. It's fine. Yeah. So, um, on the train back to London Kemper, who does Mr. Satterthwaite come across? I, I can't possibly imagine who it might be. Oh, might it be Mr. Quinn? <laughs> what? 
<laughs> yeah. And so Mr. Quinn appears across from him and Satterthwaite tells Quinn that he feels as though he utterly failed because this like enchanting magical young woman was murdered and Quinn tells him that he didn't fail because if not for him two young men would have been put through a murder inquest and their lives potentially ruined for a crime they didn't commit those two men being Mabel's husband right and mm -hmm. also Roger Graham Correct. So Satterthwaite closes his eyes, and when he opens them, Mr. Quinn has vanished, but he has oh left. Yeah. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't walk oh off. Boy. He didn't walk off a cliff this time, but maybe he just like walked out the door of the train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moving train. Anyway, um, on his seat is a carved dark blue bird, and it may or may not be art. But Satterthwaite certainly thinks it has a certain je ne sais quoi. And after all, he is a connoisseur. And you know what I think this story is doing a little bit, given where we will go very soon at the end of this collection? The the notion that death is not necessarily a bad thing and that it is not necessarily even the end. I think Christie is kind of seeding in that idea and that it will perhaps be something that bears some fruit in our final story within this collection as Mr. Satterthwaite continues his journey through life as the old weasened man that he is. Interesting cliffhanger you leave us with, Captain. Mm. I just like to imagine that there's like a train attendant watching Mr. Every time I, like Mr. Satterthwaite and Harley Quinn are speaking, I just imagine like people watching Mr. Satterthwaite talking to himself with their jaw hanging open, just like, oh Lord, there's a crazy person talking to himself right now. What's happening? If it was like the New York City subway, nobody would even blink an eye. True. Um, Or nowadays he could just, you know, people would just think he had like a really tiny Bluetooth in his ear or something. I know, like his (laughs) earbuds were (laughs) malfunctioning in some way. Yeah, yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of yet another installment of Harley Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite. We don't have too many of these left, so I, for one, am savoring each time we get to spend a spell with Harley Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite. It's always a delight. I mean, they are weird (laughs) But I am not begrudging them that because I kind of enjoy it. Yeah. And they're like, they really are only getting weirder. (laughs) I know. Right? It's a wild, a wild ride. I know. I will like the next one and I will be very excited for it. Well, speaking of wild rides, next time we will be reading a Miss Marple short story. This one is going to be Strange Jest. That's a good title. Yeah, it is a good title. I'm very much looking forward to that one, of course. And then our next novel is Sparkling Cyanide. Mm -hmm. Colonel Race makes a reappearance. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. First of all, if you have not checked out our Patreon account, please do so at www.patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, slash allaboutagatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is allaboutagatha, and our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And we appreciate the ratings and reviews we've gotten thus far, and we would love to get more each one really helps us out every single one counts so if you haven't done so yet please just take a moment and do that for us and we will see you next time bye bye